Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Everybody finds their own way and and, and that journey is a really interesting journey to go on and enjoy the journey. You don't quite know where it's going to take you. Today I'm talking to Paul Howarth, the Chief Executive of the National Nuclear Laboratory. Paul is also Chair of the Association of Innovation, Research and Technology Organisations, AIRTO. He has a number of other non-exec posts and he also, if that wasn't enough, has a professional position at the University of Manchester in nuclear technology. Paul lives in Cheshire with his wife, Victoria, and three growing boys. Welcome, Paul, and thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Delighted to uh, to be here. So we're going to start with uh, you as a young lad growing up in leafy Cheshire. Tell us us what you were like as a youngster. What were you like at school and that sort of thing? As a youngster, um, I was a big Man City fan, can tell you that. You still are. And I still am. <laughs> the, the photos of me in my Manchester City kit as a, as a five-year-old still floating around. Um, at school, uh, no, nothing special, really. Um, just en- enjoyed it. Um, always envious of these people that I, I talk to now that go back over the school days. And they were in the national team for this or the county team for that. Nothing special, really. Um, and in fact, when I look at my life, uh, I've enjoyed riding riding my bike as a kid. I still enjoy riding my bike now. I played hockey. Uh, I still enjoy playing hockey now. Actually, so not much has changed. Been boring. You've not really grown up much, have you? <laughs> yeah, I haven't grown up. <laughs> <laughs> so what were the sort of subjects and things, thinking about, you know, um, were you on the, the, the artistic side of things, history, geography, all that sort of stuff, or was it very much the sciences, which, you know... I think you, I, I was on the sciences, I was nothing special through my O-levels, uh, and uh, and I think I was I was always on the B table. I was never good enough to be on the A table. For me, actually, A-levels was the time that it really switched on. I did maths, physics, and chemistry. I went down the, the science route. Uh, really interesting science. Interestingly, from geographical location, um, uh, we're not far... Uh, I, I live not far from Jodrell Bank in, in Cheshire, so I used to go there as a kid. My dad used to take me there. Uh, my dad was a research uh, chemist working in Manchester at Trafford Park. And I uh, used to go to Jodrell Bank and uh, just interested in space uh, at the time. I remember I switched on in A-levels uh, and A-levels, I just felt some of the light bulbs started to click. Um, I got very interested in um, astrophysics and, and the, the view of how, how on earth can you describe the universe through a set of equations and that just really got me going uh, and I just found it so fascinating so it was astrophysics that that really turned really turned my attention and uh, then going to university so I studied um, physics and astrophysics at, at Birmingham my sister went to Birmingham University um, she had an interesting journey actually is a bit of an aside but it, it is relevant um, she wanted to become a dentist but Back in the day, we're going back a few years now, of course, going through A-levels, she was told at her school, being a girl, that she wasn't able to do the science subjects. Um, you know, can you imagine that now? That's how it was. 
So uh, I remember sitting with my mum uh, in the back of a little mini whilst my uh, eldest sister, Susan, went to extra tuition was the only way mum and dad could get the school to agree for her to do maths, physics and biology, she did actually, um, if uh, she did extra tuition. So I, I remember those days well. How did you find the transition from school into university? Because it, it, it's quite a big step, isn't it? You know, all of a sudden you're on your own. You haven't got mum and dad sorting out while you're washing your meals and all that sort of stuff. You've got to fend for yourself, get to know other people and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a challenge, actually. So I did two things. Number one is I, I joined a hockey team, uh, which, you know, I, team sport, I'm a strong believer because you, you immediately make friends wherever you go. And the other, and, and as my sister said, uh, um, get involved with the medics. They're a social mad bunch. So I got involved with the medics and the dentists as a, as a mad bunch, actually. And uh, actually, here's a bizarre coincidence. Um, through, through getting involved with the, the dentists and the medics, that's how I then met my wife, now Victoria. She was a dental technician at Birmingham University. So you finished your degree. Um, did you think about trying to find a job or something, or were you always keen to stay on and do research? I very much enjoyed doing the degree. And one of the things that uh, really um, uh, I enjoyed in the third year was uh, we did like a mini research project. And, um, and I remember my now wife, Victoria, said uh, she, she was some of the stuff she was doing in, in dentistry, um, asked me, have you ever heard of uh, computer tomography? And I, and I hadn't. Uh, I said, oh, that sounds very interesting. I'll have a look, see what it, it was. And um, uh, and in the end, for our project at university in the third year, uh, I, I built an X-ray uh, tomography machine, which was great for a little tiny one on the bench in the lab. But the research side of it, I, I really enjoyed. And it was that that I thought, hey, another three years at university to do a PhD. Um, I could, I do research, really exciting, really interesting, and and that's what I did. I decided to stay uh, stay on and do a PhD. And then came the opportunity to um, work on nuclear fusion. Yeah, that's a wow that's amazing that's that you know what what is nuclear fusion as as an energy source that's incredible and um uh they traced me down to cullum uh to uh the joint european taurus and uh met a team there that worked on uh nuclear diet nuclear diagnostics for the fusion device and again bizarrely it's, it's honestly it's a small small world how things work um my PhD supervisor in industry working at Cullum said, we're building this device. It's tomographic scanner. Have you heard of one? Hey, guess what? <laughs> yeah. So, I made one. So, yeah. Yeah. I made one. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was then became my PhD project, which was to build a, um, a tomographic uh, scanner for the fusion uh, device. And um, I think it was August, 1991. They said, we want you full time down in, in Cullum at uh, working on JET. So I was never really at Birmingham University. Uh, literally, I walked through the door in 1991 uh, at JET. And it was just when they did the first deuterium tritium plasma experiment in the world. There were film crews all over the place. I walked through the door. I get a microphone uh, shoved under my nose. And, and I was asked, how great is this experiment? What do you think about it? And before I knew it, I was on I was on the, the news and my mum said, oh, my God, I've just seen you on the news. 
I didn't know anything about what they were doing. I literally had just turned up through the door. Uh, and there you go, the rest is history. So you, you completed that. Um, how do you think you changed during the PhD? Because again, that stretches you in different ways, doesn't it? Did you find out things that motivated you or things you found hard or things that you discovered you were passionate about? I think that uh, definitely the interest in energy uh, and climate change and recognising what they're doing in, in uh, the nuclear fusion programme of addressing the energy challenge, that really switched me on. I was really interested in that. I thought, wow, this is, this is a really strong driver. Uh, you feel you're doing real good here to, to try to crack this. Long way to go, but well worthwhile. Very much enjoyed the lab. Uh, experimental uh, work as well, and, and just a big science environment. It was, wow, this is amazing to be to be part of a huge project. And, and JET, of course, is very international. It's a, it's a European centre. So I was working alongside all sorts of nationalities, and, and it was absolutely fascinating opportunity to be immersed in an international programme. And the fact then that I felt really proud of it, then people ask me, what are you doing? And I, I would say to them, it's about addressing climate change and go, wow, that is fantastic. You know, what a, what a great thing to do. So that that definitely meant a lot to me. Yes. And then presumably, and I'm guessing as that came to the end, you, you, you would have had an opportunity to stay on and, and have a career within Fusion. Oh, yeah. Well, that was interesting at the time because it was just when they were trying to get ITER off the ground, the International uh, Experimental Device. The Americans weren't, weren't part of the project. And so actually, Fusion was in the doldrums of it. There was no clear path forward uh, for it, and ITER hadn't got up and running. So I was actually looking around. I finished my PhD, and then I was looking around uh, for a job. Uh, I went back to have another look at, at the City of London uh, to, again, go back into banking. But uh, again, it didn't. It didn't. Didn't really hit. Uh, there was something there, and 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 even though folks say, "Wow, you can earn a lot of money," there still wasn't the connection about the real purpose. You know, that drives you of what you're trying to do here. Um, I, I did at the time apply for a uh, postdoc position uh, out in Japan. It was a literal shot in the dark, uh, but but nothing happened. And then I got contacted by my external examiner on my PhD, who said um, that actually I, I work at, he works at Sellafield, and he said, we're, we're setting up a new company to build um, instruments for uh, the nuclear fission industry, and we've got a load of jobs at Sellafield. And, uh, and so I, actually I was quite interested in that. I, so I traveled up in, in my, I had a little Ford uh, Fiesta 950cc, Remember them? The tiny yeah, little yeah, we had one as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to make the journey up to up to Sellafield. Um, and as usual, of course, I got I got my um my journey wrong because I forgot how long it was actually going to take to get from the M6 across to Sellafield in a little 950 Ford Fiesta that trying to get up over those hills was was hard work. But I've always had a love for the countryside. Uh, my dad used to take me camping in North Wales in Snowdonia when I was a kid. And then suddenly to find I was in the Lake District, it was like, whoa, this is, this is amazing. And, uh, and then the opportunity to work for a company that uh, was nuclear. Uh, so, you know, I had a strong passion for nuclear uh, energy. And, um, uh, and uh, I think it's probably okay to say now, but the external examiner said, look, 
you can finish this PhD off pretty quickly. You've got a job at the end of it. So, uh, so I quickly finished my, my PhD, got through the Viva uh, dead easy uh, because he wanted me at Sellafield starting, starting on Monday. So that's how, that's how I found myself at Sellafield. And again, that was probably, was it sort of, again, in the sort of laboratory side of things, making instruments and designing instruments and stuff? Yeah, it was. It was all about, it was that side that I really, uh, yeah, really enjoyed. That's really interesting. So before I knew it, I found myself in in Sellafield with a respirator on, in in full protective gear, sitting on the Thought product finishing line, um, uh, calibrating instruments in the heart of um, the reprocessing plant and the plutonium finishing lines. I did wonder how on earth I ended up doing that, but it was it was great fun. You then had this opportunity to go and work in Japan. Tell us how that came about. So, uh, so you, you may recall earlier I said that I, I applied for a postdoc out in Japan. That never thought twice about it. I then got a letter saying you're successful and you've got a postdoc. I thought, oh my god, I wasn't expecting that. But um, uh, what, I, what I actually decided to do was I spoke to BNFL and said, look, I, I know I've just come to Sellafield, but I've also just had an opportunity to go to Japan. And I wondered if I'd recognized that the Japanese were a big customer of, um, of BNFL. I said, look, how about uh, I, I finish my 12 months here um, and uh, I go to Japan? So they agreed. So you land in Japan, you don't speak the language. You're going to start this postdoc. How, how do you cope? It's yeah, a it deep was, end, isn't it? It, it was. And, and actually, the, uh, the supervisor of the university, so I was at Kyushu University, their technology transfer centre that worked on the semiconductor industry. But actually, there was a lot of overlap on diagnostic instrumentation. Um, almost, almost another tomographic scanner, but not quite. Uh, but um, uh, he, he was really good, and his focus and attention, he said, I'm not worried about you, Paul. It's about your wife and how she's going to cope. And uh, he, he was great, very westernised, and um, they made sure they helped her a lot because they said, you're fine, Paul. You've got a, you've got a, you know, a, a job there during the daytime. Victoria got on great. She joined the gym. Uh, she taught English. She had a wonderful time, thoroughly enjoyed um, it from a you know, normal career. She, she had back in back in the UK and we, we had a thoroughly enjoyable time in Japan. There's a really good lesson there though and that's something I see in you is you know when people come to work often people think it's just them but of course there's this whole family circumstance the whole person what you know difficult things at home difficult things at work so you bring your whole self don't you yeah and you know I, I just wonder whether somehow you've sort of carried that experience forward into how you actually manage and lead an organization of people with families and children actually through a really difficult time now with COVID and everything else. Do you think that was something that, you know, a lesson you may have learned there or? I, I, I think it's a really good observation, Andrew. I think there definitely is uh, an example and a case there when I was out in, in Japan that it's recognizing it's more than just yourself. It's, it's everything that comes with you. And, um, and my supervisor, the um, Mr. Moroka, Moroka Sensei, uh, he was very, very attuned to that, which, which was great. As, as uh, you know, someone from Japan, which has that hardworking culture in place, to recognise that broader family values, which was, uh, which was really good. So you finished your two years. You came back, and you came back to BNFL in product development. But I just want to jump forward a little bit because then you went down to Berkeley, 
So tell us a little bit about that experience, because again, when you're thinking about people and jobs and families and things, you had some quite challenging things that you were asked to do, didn't you, at, at Barclay? Yeah, I uh, and and again moved down to to well, I moved a lot around the UK when I came back uh, and BNFL, but then um, Sue Ian, who I worked closely uh, with, um, and I I'd contacted Sue actually when I was out in Japan, and I used to. It would now be called a blog, but blogs didn't exist then. And I would write back to the the exec directors at um, BNFL about uh, this is what's happening out in Japan. And and Sue Sue picked that up. She was really interested in it, and uh, I think took me under her wing a bit. And after I became Sue's uh, special assistant, which was a fascinating opportunity that helped me enormously to see across a whole company. And um, and I think that that stood me in good stead for my future career um, of total visibility across uh, an organisation. So just explain for, for people who might not know what a special assistant is or does. What what's the experience? Yeah, so it's where the, I suppose it's a, it's a, an early career person who's given the opportunity to work alongside an exec director, and and that was the the opportunity that uh, she gave me when I came back to the UK and um, it's 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 um, unofficially called the bag carrier role where you follow you follow them round um, but uh, it, it, that's just such a great experience because you're in all the meetings but w- what Sue was fantastic doing was was listening to people treating you as an equal and um, you know there wasn't a hierarchy in in place and that, that was a great a great learning uh, opportunity for me as a whole and to see a really good leader uh, in, in an organization and as I say it gave me a great opportunity to look right across a company um, Sue it was Sue who sent me down to Barclay and she said there's a job for you down there um, I knew nothing about the area but she said that that was actually throwing me in at the deep end and she said you can't you can't do the stuff yourself you've got to learn to work through others because I said, I don't know anything about what you're asking me to do down at Barclay Nuclear Generation. She said, that's the idea. You've got, you've got to rely on others and you've got to get others to help you and work with you. And that was, you know, a fantastic, what was it, throw you out of the nest, throw you in the deep end, you know, a great learning experience. And uh, yeah, it was a bit of a challenge because the job was to, to move the work from, um, uh, from down at Barclay. Uh, up to uh, up to Sellafield, but um, thoroughly great opportunity and um, first opportunity, I think, for me to to lead a fairly large team and to and to and to see what I could do to help motivate and drive that drive that team to 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 do what they had to do, which was a bit of a challenge for them. Yes, yes, and, and I guess part of that is learning to understand people, um, how you can get the best from people. Yeah. What were the sort of lessons you learned throughout that sort of people dynamic with your team that you had to ask them to do difficult things and motivate them maybe in different ways and things? I think the it's recognising the professionalism and the pride that people have in their work. So even though we'd asked them to, we, we did the post-irradiation examination of the fuel for the English stations down at Barclay, but the intention was to move it to wind scale and, and to do that work there. And the English station's work had never been done up there. So we were asking them effectively to, to close down their program of work. Um, that was a real challenge, uh, being uh, empathetic with them, 
and again, understanding the impact that this was going to have on them, the change curve that they would go through, but then the true professionalism that shone through with them receiving the last uh, program of work there and then helping to move the work up themselves, even though they knew they weren't going with it. But also, and I remember a number of the people there engaging with them about what their future careers would be. And, uh, and a number, I, I set off with the optimistic aim of maybe there'll be a coach load that will come with me uh, up to Sellafield because I was going as well with them. Then it got down to maybe there's just a minibus full of them. And then in the end, it was maybe there's a few just in the car that will come with me up to, up to Sellafield. But what I had to do was to engage each one of them and help them on what their future career uh, journey and opportunity would be. And um, uh, that was a that was a big learning experience. So then you carried on with Sue in the the NFL Energy Unit, which I guess took you more into thinking about UK energy, working with government, um, thinking about the bigger, even the bigger picture. So what were you involved in there? Yeah, so that was a really good opportunity to engage in the policy side and work closely with with government. And this was at the time when uh, the government set out in, I think it was 2003, its energy white paper for the 60% reduction in CO2 emissions, uh, but it didn't include nuclear. And what we needed to do to reverse that and get nuclear back on the, on the agenda. Uh, and as much as I'd enjoyed, the, I'd enjoyed the experimental work, but I'd moved away from it, uh, I felt that um, there was... For me, for my career, it was more of working across lots of different areas and trying to join the dots together that, uh, that excited me as opposed to being a specialist in one particular area. And then working with government and looking at policy, uh, I, I felt that was really exciting, a great opportunity to engage with um, government, civil servants, uh, MPs, lords, influential um, bodies like Royal Society, et cetera, and, and, and really to, to drive that motivation for nuclear being part of the mix and really, really believing in that. Um, when I was out in, in um, Japan, uh, I did have the opportunity to travel around uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, you would see people, you know, you, you would see poverty and that out in, in different parts of Southeast Asia. My first real experience of it, you know, coming from Levy Cheshire. Um, and, and you realize anything, what can I do to, what, would, what, what could you do to help these people? What could I do? And you realize, and you get a lot of people, you know, begging you for money and you think, yeah, okay, I can give you money, but what, what could you do with it? And you realize they can't actually do anything because they haven't got any infrastructure. And, and what you actually need to help people in their, in their lives when they've got, you know, real poverty is these people need infrastructure. They need roads, rail, energy, heating, lighting. And, and then behind all of that, you realize actually what they really need is energy. It's energy that drives everything. So I learned a lot through that. And then when working in government about energy policy, and said, look, we need, we need really good energy policy here and addressing climate change uh, yeah. was just so important. Yeah, and, and of course that discussion's carrying on and be getting more, more and more urgent, isn't it, at the moment? Um, so you then sort of spent a bit of time um, 
within the university helping to establish the Dalton Nuclear Institute at Manchester and, and leading that for a time. Um, that must have been a different experience again in a different sort of culture. How did you adapt? Yeah, it's a very different culture. Uh, and um, I was, uh, it took a bit of time to understand the academic world compared to the corporate world. It's quite different. But I did feel that um, I've spent time understanding government, understanding the corporate world. Uh, and then and I thought that the interesting opportunity here to understand the academic world, because they all fit together, um, you know, quite, quite neatly. Uh, yeah, academic world's a really interesting one, as you know, you will well know, that you don't necessarily have the corporate structures in place. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very collegiate society, um, less about an organisational structure. Try to get your head round when you work in a department that nobody actually wants to be the head of the department. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the corporate world, everybody's fighting over each other to be the head of the department. In, in academia, everybody's stepping back from it. So after that, uh, you came back to what was now um, uh, Nexia Solutions, which became the National Nuclear Laboratory, didn't you? Because there was the bid that went into to government. Yeah, that's right. There, there was a plan that sat around all of this, which at the time, nuclear was going out of favour of the government, back to the 2003 Energy White Paper. And Manchester, um, great leadership at, at Manchester, and uh, the past, um, uh, Alan Gilbert, yeah, um, Vice-Chancellor, a lot of time for him, uh, fantastic individual. Well, you know, and Nancy as well. I think Nancy's absolutely wonderful. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, a, a lot of vision and the recognition that we needed to protect, nurture and build nuclear capability. So Manchester stepped up to the plate. Um, we looked at the establishment of a national laboratory. We brought in Battelle uh, from America. Uh, subsequently, I went to work for uh, Battelle and uh, that's a great, a great company, great set of values in, in Battelle. They, they really believe in what they do. And, uh, and, and that, that drove me a lot. I really enjoyed my time in, in Battelle. And of course that then led through to um, um, a national, national lab in, in the UK. And, and the whole discussion at the moment around a purpose driven national lab, why are we here? What motivates us as an, as an organization? Again, the learning from Battelle, living the values of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. The values in Patel were really strong. And the first thing they do is they tell you the history of the organization. It's a charity. You know, you don't think that it's a charity, actually. But, you know, it came from Gordon Patel, who was a, um, a steel magnate back in the 1930s, who fortunately for him pulled his money out of the stock market uh, just before the Great Depression. And he saw the deprivation after the Great Depression. And he realized that the way out of this for the American economy was through science, technology, and engineering. And he set up the foundation uh, then, which now subsequently has become, a, what is it, an $8 billion US organization employing 80,000 uh, people. So real strong values, though, about uh, effectively all the profit that they generate goes back into education. And... Patel actually then sets up schools 
and uh, does a lot on ED&I and, um, you know, encouraging. They expect all their staff to get heavily involved in, you know, these activities of, of supporting the community. Uh, so very strong values from an organization. And, and yeah, it makes you feel really good about being part of a broader uh, organization that's trying to do some real good. Yes, yes. And that's a big motivator for people coming into our industry now is, you know, why, why do you work? Is it just for the money or what? And a lot of people talk to me and it is about that purpose, that, that greater good that the organization is actually playing a part on. And of course, climate change is the, one of the overriding drivers for people coming into our sector. I think for me, it's always a case that um, uh, when you, you look at the, uh, and I, I suppose going back to my astrophysics days, that you just look at the maths associated with it and you go, whichever way you cut this, you, you can't achieve what you need to achieve without nuclear. I go back to those people that I'd see in, in Southeast Asia and you think they need infrastructure this is unsustainable unless you've got unless you've got nuclear, and that's something which has stayed with me for a for a long time. And um, yeah, from the you know from the maths point of view, it, it just makes eminent sense. I think it has meant though we've been a bit of the underdog. Um, that you, you've got to have that passion. I say it's a bit like being a Manchester City fan when we're in the third division. You know, it's been a long time. It's been a long time coming. You've got to live the passion, and uh, and now you find you're in the Premier League, and that's a bit like, <laughs> that's a bit like it is for uh, for nuclear now. You know, our time is coming because the calculations show there's no other way of uh, of doing it. So, so that yeah, that's um, it has felt that you've been a bit of the underdog in nuclear, but it's coming through now. Uh, which is which is great to see. So I'm going to take you back to when you were leaving Leafy Cheshire to go down to Birmingham to do your career. If you could give yourself at that age one piece of advice, what would it be? I think it's um, I think it's, it's it's follow your nose and believe in what you're doing. I think uh, for me that uh, and when I look at my kids now, they're going through the the schooling system um, that. I, I don't think that you have to over push kids through the schooling. So you, everybody finds their own way. And, uh, and, and that journey is a really interesting journey to go on and enjoy the journey. You don't quite know where it's going to take you. You know, I could never have plotted that, you know, as a, as a path. It just happens. But I think the advice is, is follow your nose, enjoy the journey. Um, and, and lots of different paths can be can be taken, and all the routes are, are exciting. But when you've got like a real passion, like say you know nuclear energy, and you want to do some 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 good around it, then uh, that can really help you to to determine what path you actually you actually take. Because as a young person, I think you're thrown with so many options and so many choices things that you know you could get involved it's really difficult for young people and your life is changing so fast it's really difficult uh but yeah i think i think just follow what you what you believe in mm. oh, that's great advice paul look thanks so much for your time this afternoon that's been great i really enjoyed it thanks ever so much thanks for listening enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice 
And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.